So imagine being a DJ and not fitting in the gay scene, but not fitting in the straight scene, but not fitting in the trendy scene because my music is considered heritage, but a lot of young white DJs play the same music that I do and then it's considered cool or being a crate digger. So you're navigating all this shit all the time. Das ist der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast, der Podcast rund um Nachtleben und Clubkultur. Wir sprechen mit DJs, Türstehern, Tänzern, Clubbetreibern und anderen Nachtmenschen. Mein Name ist Gesine Kühne und ich bin Jakob Töne. Herzlich willkommen beim Electronic Beats Podcast. Hey, it's me, Jacob Turner, and welcome to the Telecom Electronic Beats podcast. Today's episode is going to be in English. I'm very pleased that this conversation is finally taking place. We've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I'm really happy that I got the chance to talk to Hani Dijon. She's a DJ, artist, fashion designer, music producer, and so on. You may know her from her sets at your favorite club or your favorite festival. I talked to Honey about how she got into the scene of New York in the 1990s and how she found her way through the music industry as a trans black DJ. We also talked about how clubbing developed over the years and how she developed herself as an artist releasing a clothing line together with a known fashion brand. But before we start with my conversation with Hani Dijon, I would like to draw your attention to the different contents of electronicbeats.net. Like the big video section, for example. At Electronic Beats TV, you will find live recordings, tech talks, favorite b-sides and reviews. What I currently like to watch the most is the blind test series, where DJs have to guess famous tracks that you know for sure, but can't remember the artist's name. If you don't know it yet, I can highly recommend the recent blighters about jungle and drum bass. I'll put the link in the show notes. But now let's get started with my conversation with Hani Dijon. Hey, Hani. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, it's very great to have you here on Thank the podcast. You. Thank and you. Um, yeah, I would start with a very difficult Uh, question though okay because you're doing so many things djing yes. producing being a fashion designer right. fashion icon transgender activist yes artist but right. how would you describe yourself i would describe myself as a creative i would describe myself as a working artist um i've always took a lot of my inspiration for what i do from artists from the late 70s and early 80s of new york city when there was a lot of hybridity between disciplines and no one really sort of limited you so you were you a could express or a painter or you well i think if you know basquiat was also djing in a band and no one really questioned that didn't really take away the credit for him as art um I, you know my heroes like grace jones and and things like that she was also in fashion and a musician and theater and interdisciplinary interdisciplinary or hybridity or hybrid artists Oh, that's multidisciplinarian artists. So there's so many ways to call it. But um, I don't really think of it as, as as that. I mean, I I get a lot of shit from people saying, oh, you know, DJs aren't supposed to do this or DJs aren't supposed to do that or now you're corporate or now you don't sort of this. But I think for me, growing up, as I did in the beginning of house music culture and anytime there were subcultures, Everyone did that. You know, you, you did the graphic art for your parties, for your flyers. There was the way you dressed. There was no budget. And There like, was no budget. And so, I mean, I used to shop. I remember being like 13 and 14 and going to like the thrift store and just copying things that I saw in fashion. I didn't have any money as a 13-year-old kid. Like, But, you know, whatever money I would get from my parents, like, you could buy things for two bucks or three bucks. And, and the funny thing is, is that you need to have imagination. And so 
I would describe myself as just doing everything that I fell in love with as a kid. And that was art, music, fashion, photography, illustration. Um, And I just never thought as a trans person of color that I would be able to have these avenues to express those things um, because I never saw myself in any of these things. Even Even in house music culture, I never really saw myself. And so... The fact that I get to do these things now, I just consider myself to be a working artist working in many different creative fields because I don't see the difference between using cloth as expression or paint as expression or music as expression. Um, it's all the same for me. So creative in a the creative. end. Creative. 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 Really good one. Yeah. You already said it uh, that um, like when you're DJing, people say, ah, oh, you're just DJing and you just give a fuck about it. And I read uh, some some somehow like a motto Uh, that you said remember to never give a fuck about what uh, what other oh, people yeah. think of you like yeah. why is that important in your opinion i think because you can't live by committee because it i think if you worry so much about different people that don't even know you or haven't even walked in your shoes or don't even know your life story i i saw a quote the other day that really resonated with me and it was um people have a lot of opinions about the lives they've never lived oh people yeah people have you, a lot of opinions on, i shared this about the lives they've never lived yeah and i think That especially since, you know, just remember, like, Instagram came out in 2010. So, you know, we have this social media, all this social media stuff is really new. I didn't grow up like that, you know. I mean, I didn't want my life to be high school and worrying about who liked me and who didn't like me. And also, to be really honest, I was invisible for so many years. Like, I wasn't even considered. I wasn't even... So I learned to not have my value placed in other people's opinions about me because, um, and I think that's very dangerous for now because what happens when people aren't looking? It's sort of like if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, did it still make a noise? Yeah. And so I think it's really dangerous um, to live your life by other people's perceptions when they don't even know who they are. I mean, they're basically living their lives by things that they were taught. And just because someone told you something doesn't make it true. So you could be living I, a lie. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's the thing about Instagram, though. Yeah, because well, Instagram up. isn't real. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I don't give a shit. Um, I care about people that love me, or I care about people that engage with me, or I care about. Um, I think I have a very small circle of friends. Uh, I'm very close with my parents. I care about what those people think, the people that give me emotional stability and love and nurturance. But for a stranger, for me to wonder about what a stranger thinks about me, when that's kind of silly for me, I think. So you already talked about your parents. Yeah. Uh, you grew up in yeah. Chicago. I was so lucky. I got really fucking great parents. Yeah, yeah your parents uh, yeah. were pretty young when they My got My parents you. are very young. I'm not going to give a number because everyone wants to know <laughs> what that is. And I just think like, whenever they want, someone says to me, oh, how old are you? I'm like, happy. I said, some people live their whole lives and they're not happy. So it doesn't matter if you're 20, 90, whatever. I mean, to me, it's not about the number. It's about the quality of how you live your life. So when people say, how old are you? I'm like, happy. I'm good. Um, my parents were very, very young. I grew up at a time when, you know, I grew up in a very traditional middle-class African-American family. Music was a huge part and is a huge part of 
African-American culture. They were throwing parties. I, you, know, I, you know, I'm going to just like, say black because I think, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not afraid of that word. Um, my parents were black. My parents were partied. And I think that's maybe where I got my love of, of, of music from. And I actually, was so funny, I talk about this and I make fun of it all the time because, you know, <laughs> we've recently had this culture, selector culture. And I was like, well, I was doing that when I was eight years old, just playing records from my parents' record collection, you know. And and I was really fortunate because, you know, there was disco and R&B and then a, a lot of consciousness music from the 70s, you know, from Marvin Gaye and Minnie Riperton and, and the Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind & Fire. And then there was Donna Summer. And then my father loved Charlie Parker, Michael Jackson, um, Ashford and Simpson, Patrice Russian. Uh, this was my this was my daily soundtrack. You know, every day going to school, getting picked up from school. Every Friday night when my parents got off from work, we would all gather together as a family and dance together as a family. My dad would get his his beer and we'd order pizza. And so, for me, music has always been about um, connection and love and community and sharing and dancing and joy. So, I mean, I think that's um, that has really informed how I share music with people also sounds like a really great childhood i would say oh my childhood <laughs> was horrible um not from my house not from my my nuclear family but when i left that front door being a non-binary person in a black and latin neighborhood was not a walk in the park when did you figure out that you're non-binary well you know back then you know We didn't, you know, I, I just assumed that I was gay because those were the only words for people that had a feminine energy, but they had a different present, presentation, gender presentation. So I didn't have the language at that time. My parents certainly didn't know anything about having a trans child. And I didn't even know that those things were possible until I started, you know, in my teenage years. And I mean, back then there was no internet, no Google. There was no internet. There was no... I don't think I even saw a trans person until I was in my 20s. Like it was just... But then just, in New York? Or uh, was it then in New York or was it still in Chicago? Uh, it was still in Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I always, you know, through Fashion Magazine, there were always these images of androgynous people. So I identify like as an androgynous and I would always do these things to sort of gender fuck or so to speak because it was something that was deeply in me that I didn't have the language for. So um, when I walked out my front door, it was hell. I was bullied. I was taunted. I was laughed at. I People were shut out of their car. This is why there's AIDS, because of people like you. I mean, I it was not easy. But thank God I had a loving and supportive family. So when I came back home, I was able to sort of heal that those emotional wounds. And feel safe. It, and feel safe. Yeah. 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 And imagine being a kid. No one wants, you know, especially if if you're, you know, if you are presenting different than your gender presentation or feminine energy. No one wanted to be associated with you, especially boys, because they're very fragile and, you know, they didn't want... Maybe also afraid? Afraid, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. How was it in the, like, in the music scene? I mean, you you said that you also digged at a very early age. I think, like, I read something about 12 or 13. Yeah, 13. My mother hates that story. She thinks I'm a, she was a bad parent. <laughs> well, let me explain it to you. But my, uh, my question was, because, I mean, you uh, told me about the music your parents uh, yes. were, were listening to. Yes. And um, then your first record was... a Bastage. one. By yellow. Well, okay, so like this it's is a, totally out of context somehow. Well, I know everyone is so surprised by that, <laughs> but I'll tell you why. Because um, at the at that time, we also it was the beginning of cable, and we had this independent cable station called MV60 um, that used to play a lot of early Brit synth pop, 
and new wave music from New York, from the whole downtown scene. So um, I would see these videos. And if you know anything about the history of house music, a lot of that music was incorporated into early DJ sets. So when I went, so I'm going to just go back and give a little bit of history. I went to a Catholic school. My parents put me in a Catholic school. And so if you know anything, all the early house music parties were held in the auditoriums of Catholic schools. Oh, wow. So (laughs) just by default, Whenever there was a school dance or party, I would go to these dances, and that was my first introduction to DJ. So you had these DJs playing Salso records next to a Boss's record, next to a B-52's record, next to early acid. You know what I mean? So it was that was my exposure, and so what I would I, that's how I heard Bossage. And then you had the Hot Mix Five on WBMX, and they were playing a lot of that music as well. So it was on the radio. Um, kids were bringing mixtapes to school. They they would record WBMX. So I. I really feel that it was thought I was born in the right place at the right time. And that's how I got exposed to that. And so w- there used to be a record shop called JR's Music in the mall. And, and I used to take the bus to the mall, 45 minutes from my house on the south side. And I saw the first 12-inch of Bostage. And that was the first record <laughs> I bought. That, that's an interesting story, though. Yeah. As you said, uh, like most of the parties you went there were in... in Catholic high school auditoriums. Mendel is one. Hyde Park, Mendel, Yeah. Nice, yeah. but what, back then there, um, did you feel safe? Also, like a safe space, like home, or was it still there? It was that... a revelation. I think when I first heard this music, it was a revelation, and I mean, I just it, it, what my first outside of my parents' home, I was just hearing a lot of disco and Kid Creole and the Coconuts and things that were on Z Records. And then that's how I found out about Prelude and West End and then Sleeping Bag Records and all of this stuff. And it was just like this whole, it was like a Pandora's box open for me. And then seeing the videos like Bow Wow Wow, Blamage, Echo and the Bunny Man, The Cure. Um, I mean, you know, and also Chicago had a, you know, the thing about Chicago is such a rich musical city. You know, there were industrial clubs and, new wave clubs and you know everyone was in bed with each other and so i would i had different sets of friends that i would do things with and go to wax tracks records and buy propaganda records and dead or alive and then that's how i find out about stock aiken and what stock aiken and waterman and and trevor horn and i mean it was just like then front 242 nitzareb who's who i made a song with douglas mccarthy for my album which i'm really proud that that happened um talking about this later skinny maybe. pumpies mini ministry and so this was these were my formative years as just music that you would hear at the catholic school auditorium with djs <laughs> i mean you can even look back of like i mean i have flyers from that time like one of the first female djs that i know called laurie branch who was really instrumental um she she led me down another rabbit hole of, of music um But yeah, God, it was amazing. How did it come then that you moved to New York? I moved to New York because, well, I don't know if you know, my best mate is Derek Carter. So I grew up, you know, once I started going, I mean, this is, I think we would probably need weeks to talk about, <laughs> my, about my history or her story, so to speak. Um, so I met Derek Carter when he worked at Imports, etc., And I met Derek Carter through our friend, through my sister's best friend's boyfriend, whose name was Francesco. And Francesco and I hit it off because I was somehow my sister's 
best friend would come to our house and she would hear me playing all this music. And she goes, oh, I think you should meet this guy, Francisco, you know, my boyfriend, Francisco, who likes this stuff too. And so Francisco started get, bringing all these flyers with their card. And he's like, oh, you need to come to these parties. And this was at the time when it was like loft parties, you know, and sometimes rent parties, like, you know, because Derek Carter lived with Chris Nazuka, um, Mark Farina, and another friend of ours called Glenn or Gmo. So I would go to these parties, and that's how I met Derek. And then I went down to Gramophone, and then, I mean, not Gramophone, Imports, et cetera. And me and Derek became friends from that point on. He was still living at his parents' house at the time. Um, I had moved out. I was already grown. As soon as I got out of high school, I was out of my parents' house. Downtown um, Chicago? Down in Chicago. I moved in with my first boyfriend, and I took the night shift at a hotel so I could stay on the rhythm of going out. Um. And down the street from Imports is where Lori Branch lived with her girlfriend. And that was when I first got introduced to John Waters and cocaine. And it was a revelation. And just so you know that I was 17 when I tried it and didn't really touch it again. I haven't really touched it again. Um, it's not for me. Um, Good to know, though, then. Hey, listen, I'm the... not, there's no shame here. Like, you know, no, a 17-year-old I mean... kid, you just, you do, you try. I mean, good to know for you that you tried it and you're done with it. Oh my God, if you know me as a human being, I'm like just wired naturally. I don't really need many stimulants at all. I'm actually, Perfectly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but imagine your first John Waters film on cocaine. Talk about a mind fuck. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't watch I mean, it. John Waters is a hero for me. So, But then you talk about John Waters, who had Divine, whose records were produced by Barbie Orlando, who was part of the whole high energy gay scene. With, so there's all these intersections for Connecting me. dots. Yeah, yeah. This is why I don't really... So when you said listed all these things at the beginning of the conversation, I don't separate. I, I just That's just not my DNA. Um so Lori Branch lived down this, you know, her apartment was down the street from import. So I had all these things coming together. And um, I forgot the question because now I went off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> you told me about uh, like your connection to Derek Carter ah, and yeah, how yeah, yeah. did you get to New York? That was the initial. Oh, so you're right back to New York. Okay. <laughs> so in this, this red nail where everyone lived, um, I met a guy named Gant Johnson and Gant Johnson lived in New York and he was part of the whole East Village drag and art scene. So this has becomes my next chapter in my life when I moved to New York. But to make a long story short, I was dating someone. The relationship was going bad. I got fired from my job. I got a severance pray. I moved to Washington, D.C. first before I got to New York. I got fired from that job in D.C. and took that severance pay and went to New York from my friend Gant that I met at Red Nail, which was Derek Carter, and ended up sleeping on his floor for three months. Oh, wow. That's that's hell of a ride. Like going from Washington, yeah. then like yeah. going... Well, I used to take the Greyhound bus up every two weeks for 40 bucks and sleep on my friend's floor. So, And he introduced me to everyone. And this is how I sort of got involved in the New York club art drag scene. And so that was another education and another thing. And so... But you haven't been playing... Uh, I wasn't DJing time, yet, yeah. but I started DJing um, because uh, unlike Chicago, where there wasn't a lot of separation sonically, you know, and, and I still DJ like this to this day. You would hear disco, you would hear new wave, you would hear electro, you would hear all these different, whatever you want to call it in one set. And New York was very, if you, you know, if you were into the soulful thing, you went to shelter. If you were sort of into the tribal thing, you went to uh Sound Factory, if you or Save the Robots, or, or if you were into sort of a more what Masters at Work was doing, or or David Morales, you went to Sound Factory Bar. So they were, so it was really segregated. So I started DJing 
at this club called Bob on the Lower East Side on Eldridge. I think it's 195 Eldridge, if I still can remember the address. And I made all the flyers by myself. And back then, like I said, I was part of the whole East Village drag arts movement. And my friend Jeffrey Fulvamari, who is the really well-known illustrator, did my first flyers, of which I still have them in my storage. Which oh, is, nice. Yeah. And uh, it was called Chicago House. And I played every Monday for 60 bucks. And that's, you know, that's and, a start. And so then that leads into how I started to DJ in New York. And then that's a whole other conversation because I I, I was well known and I was starting to build my name because like a lot of trans women, I did drag art before I became before I did my what is the word that I like to use? I don't like the word transition because everyone is in transition um, into my becoming become. Oh, that's a good one yeah. for like. Yeah, I like it. You know, is becoming who I am now. And so. Um, I met a lot of people just by performing around in the city and my fellow DJs, because I was friends with a lot of DJs back then, you know, a lot of people that aren't really around like Troy Parrish and... Um, so did it come somehow organically that you started? It came so to... organically. I met I met Danny Teneglia through Derek Carter because Derek Carter was getting records from Maxi Records, Kevin McHugh, who was Danny's manager. And so, so I... That's how I met Danny Tuesday night on a Tuesday night, and I told him I'm going to make a record with you one day. And he looked at me like I was <laughs> like I had the plague and walked away. But I was so I you know I was so persistent about being around these people um, that we sort of became friends. And then I I'll never forget it. We, we he was playing at a club in D.C. I think it was called Nation, and we took the bus up, and I rode in the car with him. And I think that was when I became friends with Danny. And Danny actually gave me my first two channel. Radio Shack mixer, really? Because when I was playing Monday nights, I did. I was broke as fuck. I was sleeping yeah. on my friends. You know, I finally got my apartment, but I had my childhood belt-driven techniques, and so I, I, I'd always been buying records. Like since I was, I didn't know I went to BJ, but I always bought records because um, whenever I would leave the club, I would go home and want to dance with, to this music by myself. So I just bought those records, and then Derek and all these people would make tapes for their parties, and so I had a lot of mixtapes, and so I just. That's how my record collection grew organically. But it had started that you uh, played at the uh, at the venue at I forgot the name. Um, Bob. Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Did it start uh, just because like uh, you had a lot of records at home? I mean, at that time, I had a lot it's of records also at about home. Having records. And I had, yeah, I had a record collection. Like, yeah. Exa exactly. Yeah. But um, was it planned or did you move to New York and said, okay, I, I, moved, I wanted to play out? I had no idea. I moved to New York to find myself. I moved to New York to find myself. I, 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 that's the best way, you know, because, you know, I'd always bought all of these magazines and I was so into fashion and just New York seemed to be the place to be for me. Um, and, you know, now that I look back on the trajectory of my life experience, everything fits in a way. Um, but I've always been a misfit and it just seemed like the perfect place for a misfit to be. How was it back then? If you say that it was a perfect place for a misfit, you also said that uh, you were kind of directly sliding into this uh, drag um, yeah, drag scene in New York. Well, I mean, it's so funny because, because the, the trans community, the women in that community saw me before I saw myself. I finally had was able to figure it out when I moved to New York. And one of the key central figures for that was, her name is Connie Fleming, which is also known as Connie Girl. And, and and she was the first trans woman of color that I saw that was 
the aha moment for me. She was so strong looking and she had this power and aura about her that was don't fuck with me, but it was like in a such fierce, glamorous way. And she was the first black trans woman that I know that walked, modeled for Thierry Mugler and Vivian Westwood. And that was my aha moment. And and that's when I began my journey into becoming. And um, New York really, I always say I was born in Chicago, but grew up in New York. Because that's where I really became became into myself. And it wasn't easy. New York is not an easy place. Um, New York at that time, you know, it's not like now where it's basically the Dubai of America where it was super expensive. You could, you could, you know, I was making very little money, but club culture was so rich. And And this is why I always talk about clubs for me are not just places of entertainment. This is also a place where people, if you were an artist or if you were, uh, uh, a misfit or non-traditional, you could find work and you could be an artist during the day and work at night. And 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 th- this is pre-internet when people actually had to go out to find out about what music was being played on the clubs and how also to get meet jobs. the community and though. It was a real community. I mean, I, I yeah, it was a community. And, you know, drag artists were being hired to dance at the clubs or work the door or, or be hosts of a night. And so... And, and a lot of trans women as well, you know, I mean, you were really a part of the fabric of nightlife. And so, and I, I can't explain it to people that don't really understand, but you really had to have something co- to contribute in order to be invited into the party. It was either the way you express yourself through clothing or if you had extreme wit or talent or you made great records or you, you had to bring something or you were a great dancer. It wasn't like you just paid an entry fee and you could get in, you know, you really were part of a cultural community and, and a subculture. That some, somehow did get lost. Oh, it's completely lost. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's gone. I mean, uh, you already said that in an interview I've read. And when yeah. I read this, uh, I, I think it was essence. Uh, and it was in 2017. Mm. You were talking a lot about uh, a lot of topics that are mm. pretty, pretty much on top relevant right now. today. Relevant today, yeah, exactly. But uh, then I thought I about receipts. my. <laughs> <laughs> But then I thought about myself, like, because um, I grew up in, in the western part of Germany, and uh, I grew up with the internet. Like when I was going out, there were already blogs, or like you could go on the internet and find parties, and like have a community already there ready made already made somehow yeah, yeah. there and was no search yeah and i uh of course i contribute as a dj i was teaching uh mm-hmm. back then a lot mm-hmm. and i was throwing parties by myself etc but i can imagine like for uh f- yeah you can really join the community by just enjoy and not like doing anything no and i think that's like when you well that's entertainment Exactly. You can use it as entertainment as, as opposed to being a part of something. I mean, spectator is the word, I think. Um, we lived it. We really, I really lived it. I went out Monday through Friday. What, what am I going to wear? Like, you know, what record are we going to hear? Calling our friends, talking about, I hope so, you know, and this was also the age of the resident DJ. I mean, literally, you would go to a club every week to hear the same DJ And you can hear if he was in a bad mood or a good mood or new record or whatever, you know, it was just, you were a part of something as opposed to, um, and, and it was really a reflection of who you were and what scene that you were being a part of. And um, as soon as the internet happened, it went from 
Um, and also not just that, but also having accessible DAWs like Ableton and being able to make records at home and all these, everything just changed. I, you know, and I, I have this conversation a lot. I don't expect, I don't live in the past. What I do is take, I look at the past in a very critical way. I don't ever say, oh, it was better back then because there were a lot of shitty nights. There were a lot of shitty DJs. There were a lot of shitty parties. Um, but I look at that time in a critical way and and try to continue the conversation of what I experienced. And as soon as... Um, foreign, in, uh, foreign continuous improvement, though. I don't like the word improvement. It's just, uh, it's just a continuation of a conversation. Everything keeps evolving, you know. You just improve on the recipe. Yeah, that's true. You just improve on the yeah. recipe. Um, but it's definitely gone from community to entertainment. Um, the people that created this culture have sadly been not been invited to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Um, it's been commodified, colonized, um, and turned into big business. Circling back to, uh, or you already said it that uh, back then there was Carly Girl, that Carney Girl, Carney Girl, yeah. that um, really impresses you, and mm -hmm. that you had the aha mo mo uh, moment. Well, yeah, and you. We're already talking about Grace Jones and yeah. Basquiat, that they were somehow your role models, mm -hmm. that you could look up to them. Yes. Um, and today, like, I, I personally know a lot of people that are looking up to you as a role model. <laughs> well, I find Which, that really hilarious because, I, you know, I, I'm friends with Laverne Cox. And, and she said something that was really... Um, resonated with me as well. She's like, I don't want to be on a pedestal. I always like to think of myself as a role possibility. Like this is possible and you can do things and you can not have to live your life because someone puts you in that box. So I always like to, to say that I, I'm happy to be a role possibility to propose a new way of living your life unapologetically and authentically. And not just for people like myself but for everyone i don't i think one of the most important thing that trans the trans movement what it's going to create is breaking down binaries and and sexual expression for everybody you know it's not just for me it's for what how what you know straight and gay bi non but everyone you know we're we're we've taken all the intersectionalities and, and, and political identities and saying, no, we're going to do it differently or no, this is another way to live or no, you don't have to be what you were assigned to at birth based on the genitals that you have. But isn't the whole role model idea about inspiration though? So Role possibility is role, all about inspiration. Role possibilities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, if you say, or you already uh, talked about it, um, that today or in this time we are mm. in a very interesting situation. Mm. As you already said it, a lot of black artists mm. are suffering mm. under somehow colonization mm. of uh, the music industry. Mm. And if you look back... I call it the Elvis syndrome. The Elvis syndrome. <laughs> I, I yeah. personally call it the Elvis syndrome. I think wasn't a lot of his music in far. I can imagine why. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He took a lot of music, a uh, lot of music from the black rhythm, culture, rhythm soul culture. Yeah. Yeah, and, and put it when people say, "Let's just get it really." Let's just be real. When people say mainstream, they mean white. You know, a white audience. I can agree with that. Yes, that's what mainstream is. Yeah. And when you look now, uh, for example, for uh, Danny Tenaglia and all your friends, where I think a lot of them are still uh, living in New York, how mm. did especially the city changed? Oh, my God, it's become it's become a city for rich people. You know, I think the best thing someone ever said, New York now has become a place to buy art instead of create art. 
You know, anytime you have gentrification, there's a really great book that I think everyone should read. It's called The Gentrification of the Mind, Witness to a Lost Imagination by Sarah Schulman. And what that book talks about is like New York was, so New York was bankrupt in the 70s, and then it went through this whole Reaganomics and, and, and wealth in the 80s. And then hedge funds started happening and buyouts and all these sorts of things. Um, it was also coinciding with the AIDS epidemic. So what this book talks about is how New York was decimated by AIDS and a lot of gay people um, that left their small towns to move to New York. You know, a lot of them were disowned by their families or or their communities from wherever they came from. So a lot of times when, when these gay people would die, all of their belongings would be put out on the street and and because there was no one to identify the bodies or, you know, people just literally. So this is when you had all this real estate coming in, getting all of this 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 stuff in New York and and it just that's what started the whole sort of real estate boom and it's really great this book and it just talks about how you know for me the big cultural change in in, in New York is AIDS because not only did it it kill the the cream of the crop in all arts but the audience that appreciated it so all the B C D level people got scooted to the front so so the it, mediocrity it changed a lot to changed a lot yeah. And uh, you moved for, uh, to Berlin then? I moved to Berlin. Well, I've had a lot, you know, people don't know this, but I DJed at the original Oskut. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's a long time ago. That's a long, like 2002, 2003. And then um, it's so funny because people are like, oh, how come you didn't DJ very much between that time and 2010? I said, because I, because it was minimal was popular. I, I didn't play minimal music. Somehow I just fell through the cracks, you know? Um, I don't think it was anything about, it's just, I just, I wasn't playing trendy music and minimal was super huge at that time. And, and so, you were somehow also ambassador of the New York sound. If you want to say, <laughs> tell it though. I mean, it's very, I mean, I always like to, to say I'm a love child between, I, I, I'm, I like to say I'm a love child between Danny. If Danny and Derek had a baby, I would be the, <laughs> the baby. Um, oh yeah. Powerful, but soulful. Yeah. Well, D D Danny used to coin it progressive soul. Progressive soul. Yeah. Because I, would, I, I was thinking about like a punchline to describe your sound. It's always not, you, you cannot tell. I thank you. I hope so. Some, you, you cannot tell somebody that, or it's not easy to tell some, uh, that somebody is playing like some sort of just house music or just that. Right. Because it's always a mixture of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it, so many influences come out when I DJ. I used to get a lot of shit for that because, you know, promoters are like, oh, we don't know what we're going to get from you, which is now. Yeah. I also uh, read that you were complaining that like back then people are were booking like DJs that are okay. When I book Honey Dijon, I get what I want, but you were like, okay. I, well, I play okay. What, so I mean, let's, well, so let's get, uh, all right. So what I meant by that statement, being a trans person, you know, DJing at that time was, was a very much a boys club. Um, you know, before I would say up until 2015, when the Me Too movement started and we had, you know, Black Lives oh, Matter, yeah, that changed, that changed everything in this history. conversation about women and, and music. Before that, I had to toil a long time in gay clubs because straight promoters, if I would play for them, they would think that I would bring a big gay crowd or that I played gay music. I had to pay my dues in gay clubs because they were the only ones that would hire me. And I had to, and that was really difficult for me because this music comes from working class black people and gay people. And somehow along the way that changed. And, you know, 
I think because of AIDS and the mainstreaming of gay culture, the musical taste went in that direction too. So and then so you you would think the black gay crowd started to go more towards hip hop and 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 I think a lot of the black culture sort of abandoned house music and it started be, you know especially the gay population and they started to get into the Rihannas and the Beyonces and more R&B and hip hop and the white gay crowds they totally went pop I say sometimes for me it's you know when I would play back at those parties it was there was no difference between me playing for 16 year old girls or 30 year old gay men you know was having to play Madonna remixes and and uh, I mean literally I would be hired at clubs like you have to play these this music and it was you know I, I wish I could tell people I wanted to be a DJ so bad that for me, I did whatever I needed to do. And I think there's a misconception that when people say, oh, I want to be a DJ, that they think they're going to be the playing the parties that they fell in love with. That's not how it works as a DJ. And it doesn't even work that w- at, when you're a professional DJ. Um, but was it back you don't then get in New always, York? Or are we already talking? It was talking? in New York. Yeah, okay. it was in New York. You don't always get, you know, not everyone in front of you has your history. So you don't always get to go and play, you know, I mean, especially if you're a touring DJ, no one knows your story. You don't know their story. So, you know, you don't all, you, you have, you have to meet them someplace, you know, but I had to, what you have in common is the music then you have in common is the music, but I think there's a fine line. I, I think, you know, reading a room is life experience and being in all different types of environments. It's not just like gonna, I'm going to play the music I like to the crowd of people I like. That's not how it works. You know, I was fortunate enough to have, have grown up in a, at a time when different subcultures cross pollinated with one another, one another. So I, I DJed a gay hip hop party once I DJed, you know, I would, then I would do my small bar gigs or DJ at restaurants or DJ at weddings or DJ. I mean, I just DJed. And I think that's what what gave me a breath of experience of how to, to sort of read a room, like if just feeling how the energy and looking at how people are moving with their bodies and what they respond to and what they don't respond to. I'm not masturbating behind the DJ booth. So for me, it's like as an artist, it's great when people come to see what you do, but you also have to be able to, you know, they pay to come see you. So you, it's, it's education and entertaining and at the same time. Um But now I got the clue. Like I told you that I'm when I would describe you or right. your sets in one sentence, it's ex especially powerful. Yeah, and I think powerful fits here uh, crazy because a powerful doesn't mean that it's pumpy or going straight four to the floor, but powerful also means that uh, it catches like the energy. It could be R and B. It could be yeah. Soul, it could be disco, Techno, whatever. whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah, yeah. the energy, like I get goosebumps right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, yeah, yeah. I'm. I feel like I have. A, I, when I'm DJing, I feel like the movie Alien. Like there's this alien inside of me that just like I. I I'm like literally when I, I'm eight he records ahead when I'm playing. Um, <laughs> that's that's a lot. You you, you should consider playing chess though. Then maybe <laughs> I, maybe I guess. Um, but but so getting back to what you said about me. You know, I had to play in gay clubs, and and even then, I had a lot of problems because I, you know, I wasn't playing gay enough because I wasn't playing pop records or enough diva vocals. And I actually had a friend say to me, a very prominent um, gay promoter, he said, "You know, you would be a really big gay DJ if you just played more commercial things." And I thought, thought this isn't. It, it was sort of at that moment when I decided, okay, I'm really going to need to start 
playing what I love because if this is the road I'm going to continue to go down, I don't, it, it's, I wasn't happy. I just wasn't happy. And just be, you know, I just wanted how I identify, and I still get it a lot today, you know, like a lot of people want to book me just because, you know, I'm the trans black DJ and they can check a lot of boxes off their diversity quotient, but they're not necessarily aware of what I do as an artist. So I still do with that a lot. And, and I, and, and, um, yeah, it was, it was a rocky road. And, and, you know, you have all these straight, straight white men deciding who gets to play on festivals and clubs and things like that, that may not necessarily understand my history and what I come from. So that's why we are talking right now. Yeah. So it's really, it's really, really, so imagine being a DJ and not fitting in the gay scene, but not fitting in the straight scene, but not fitting in the trendy scene because my music is considered heritage. But then, but a lot of young white DJs play the same music that I do and then it's considered cool or being a crate digger. So you're navigating all this shit all the time. That really fits. Uh, <laughs> like you're saying, I'm, I have a lot of quotes from you. Yes. And I'm just checking, check, yes, check, check. Because yes, yes, yes. there was uh, oh, one time you said that uh, as a DJ, you have to develop yourself before putting your art Oh there. my God. You, I love this quote that Quincy Jones says, like, your music will never be as good or as bad as the human being that you are. Oh, yes. Totally. 100% agree. So like who you are as a person is how your music is going to come out. Yeah. Also, the feeling about the songs feeling, you release. Yeah. Like, playing. oh, I need to impress people, or that may come from an insecurity, or, or um, whatever the case may be. You know, some people, everyone approaches being a DJ from a different perspective. Um, I never knew that having a career like this was possible. Um, dealing with all of the attention and all of the spotlight and all of the you know i did a party in london last year where you couldn't even see me because i wanted to take it back to it being about the music and yeah. people dancing together not fucking standing in front of me like we're at a concert um also to maybe to get the feeling from back then where like you as a not get the you're feeling not... back but present it to a new generation that may not have experienced what that was like so i'm taking so not something being... critically from that yeah. time and applying it to today's because if you're 20 or 25 you don't know what it's like to be in a room where the dj isn't hidden you don't know what it's like to be in a room with just four stacks lights and and your mates dance like you have to dance with each other instead of dancing in front you, the, the, not the reason why sex left the club to, is yeah. the, the reason why sex left the club is because people were dancing shoulder to shoulder instead of face to face yeah so. and you're not forced or like you're forced but you're not pointing to the dj and facing oh, to my the God. dj i mean but don't look at like, me i mean it's like i mean back <laughs> in new Parrish york said at once like huh? why are you looking at me what? i'm just an old guy playing records well i mean i know i'm good you know i know i look good to look at but but, <laughs> but for me it's like um oh my god it's i get goosebumps just thinking about like when i used to go to clubs in new york and Back then, the DJ was so high that you couldn't see the DJ, and all you would see was a sliver of light from the booth with the, with the, the deck lights. And oh, it so was just there was no highlights. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Larry Levan, you couldn't see Larry Levan at the garage. You know? So, I mean, it's like, I like that mysticism of, of not knowing where this source of energy is coming from. I remember, I, I don't remember the name, but there was also a club uh, where the DJ was situated a little bit lower mm -hmm. and he had like a, uh, a glass or like a, a slice where you can look through mm. and just saw the the feet the feet yeah exactly 
I do, I, it was also in New York. I don't know that club, but I've never heard. But it's of also that. a really great concept because yeah. you get a lot of energy from the feet. I think I would need it from the waist down because I need the to waist see, down. I need some bumping and grinding. I need to see what's happening. Feet aren't really, you know. Maybe it's now uh, an inspiration for for people who reopen foot the club, club. Hopefully, foot, uh, hopefully soon. Yeah, but I think for me, I you know, I I just wanted to take, like I said, like take something from a, in a critical way like okay let's what would a party be like now if, if you can't see me would i play better would people enjoy themselves better would they be less inhibited um because that's what i want people to i want people when i dj i don't care what anyone else is doing i don't care where anyone else is in the world what whatever time slot i'm given whatever for me it's a party and a celebration i you know i know a lot of people you know DJ for like I said for various different reasons, but I, for whatever two hours or four hours, it's a party. That's that's a good like cut for the DJ yeah, DJ it's part. It's a D uh, yeah. Um, I read oh uh, I also read like I I read a lot about you and uh, just to get an overview because like all your sayings are pretty interesting. All my honeyisms, <laughs> honeyisms, honeyisms. Yes. And you also said um. That uh, that's also why I uh, would say that you're a role inspiration, right? Or role opportunity. I like that role inspiration, a role possibility. Yes, because uh, you also said that you're writing down your goals. Oh my like, god! From time yeah, to time. of course. Well, there's a really great book called The Artist Way that I recommend everyone read. And what it does, it tells you every day they're called morning pages. You get up and you write down stream of consciousness consciousness thoughts. And so I journal a lot. I think another artist I love, Erica Baidu, journals a lot. I think a lot of artists journal a lot. Just a place to put things. In order to manifest things, you need to see them. So I write down dreams, fears, goals, music ideas. I just also keep maybe journals. good to not get lost. Like see where I was five years ago. Yeah. Um, how have I evolved as a human being? What worried me two years ago that doesn't worry me now? It, because I think a lot of times. I always like to think everything that you have now, at some point you want it. So it's also a matter of being living in gratitude. At some point, the success you have now is something that you dreamed about. So I always like to remind myself that. Um, so when you get back to this role possibility things, success for me is the fact that I survived as a trans woman. Because we all know that it's dis proportionate amount of violence that happens against trans women of color um, that I get paid or people listen to what I do from music that I love I mean there's <laughs> nothing I, I don't I mean that to me is success I mean not like oh how many likes I got on an Instagram or not another photo of me in the DJ booth with the crap from behind with me raising my I, you know none of that you know the fact that I get up every day I get to choose my day I get to choose my day and decide or even if I'm invited to play somewhere how am I going to play like these are luck these are the small things for me that I get that that for me It's also being able to collab with uh like and very you know the word people. i tell you the, the the best thing about success people take your motherfucking phone calls and they take <laughs> your shit seriously like if you want to work with a certain producer oh or if you want to work with a certain designer or if you want to work with people actually consider your consider you so that to me not the fucking money not the where's my name on the bill not the the fact that i get to create and the the people that i love and respect return my phone calls like i you know like 
whatever opinion that you may have about Madonna, I don't care if you think she's whatever, you you know, she's a controversial artist. And like we had at the beginning of of the conversation, I don't know any artist that, that has moved the needle forward that's not controversial. And when I met Madonna, it was more of like, oh my God, she was friends with Keith Haring. She dated Jean-Michel Basquiat. She was part of the new, it wasn't, you know, all of the, uh, it wasn't the Vogue thing in the music. It was like, she was a part of a culture that I so dearly love. And so that was, that's what I got off on. And I wanted to talk about New York and the East Village and all this kind of shit. Um, Not about music though. Like... Just like I mean, it was. It, I, I mean, I don't know anyone that would turn. I, I mean, I think if, if you talk to anyone, I don't care where they are in the DJ world. Say, oh, do you want to remix Madonna? They're like, oh no, I don't. No, it's not cool enough for me. It's, I, I, you know, you know, I can't. I don't, I don't want it. my street cred to be like. I'm like, fuck off. You know, this whole underground, above ground. First of all, there is no underground since 1983, um, and I find that this whole underground thing is very much a boys' thing. It's like girls don't talk like that. It's a boys, it, you know. I'm cooler because I know this or I dug for this record. I, I never interacted with music in a cerebral way. I always interacted with music in an emotional and cultural way. So I don't give a shit that you spend 30 hours looking for one record that costs 102,000 euros on disc- Discogs. You know, Just me, because yeah. of somebody playing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, getting back to, to Madonna. So like I said, success for me is that I get to work with someone like a Madonna, but someone like this black female artist called Alewa from from London and also get to remix a Mike Dunn record or get to remix I remix Blamage that blew my head off I worked with Douglas McCarthy for Nitzram on my next album I'm working with a lot of young female black writers from Atlanta Hadia George I don't see the separation I don't I don't deal in hierarchies of I deal with music and art and expression and I you know I don't give a shit about where you sit on the totem pole And fashion, you deal and with fashion. a lot of fashion. Yeah, like last. Well, so you know, one of the questions was, "Yo, you're a fashion designer." It's like, listen, you know, I don't know any <laughs> subculture that or music culture that doesn't have clothing as a way to communicate with they're into. I mean, look at the line getting into Bergheim, everyone wears black. That's a fashion statement. That's clothing. That's using clothing to articulate. I'm a. I I, I believe in this, or I love this, or I want to be a part of that. You know, so this it's the same thing with me creating clothes. I mean. Uh, I, I've loved. I've always looked at clothing as an expression or a possibility to live differently. But was it on your like when you look back into your journal? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it written down that you want to collab with a bigger Comme des Garçons? Yeah, for no. example. <laughs> you know, it's. I think everything in life is like. I don't know anyone that that's probably married the person that they had in their head. Um, at some point, at yeah. some point, like I mean, I I think most of the maybe not I as mean, a teenager, huh? Maybe not as a teenager, but I mean, at some point. Well, at course. some point, they align they align with core values, but I'm sure the person that you, I mean, I, okay, I, let me rephrase that. For me, I've never sort of, you never know what you want, how it will come in, but you know it when you see it, or you feel it when it happens. Did I know one day that I would have a clothing line will come to girls? Hell no. Did I ever think that I would be headlining a festival? Hell no. Did I ever think that I would be sitting here at Electronic Beats talking about my journey? Hell no. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? So I didn't have any expectations because I was not, I was the lowest rung on the ladder. 
I was a trans woman of color. I was black. I was a black woman. I was queer. I was, you know, I wasn't exactly the marketing department's number one target goal for their audience. So I never imagined that I would have anything. I just wanted to be a working DJ. I just like, if I can pay my rent, maybe travel, have a nice place to live, I'd be good. But I never, no. But crazy that you made it so far. Then. I think, well, I mean, like I always love what Billy Porter said. It's not, it's not, um, it's not a mistake that I'm successful. No, not at all. It's not a mistake because everything that I've loved, I willed myself to be around. And I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what, what it was going to look like. I just wanted to be in the room. So I think because I loved it and I was so passionate about it and I wanted to learn how to DJ and how does Derek play that record or how does Danny, what is this? Like, I just wanted to know. I just like, I'm just a Gemini. Gemini's are very curious. So I just wanted to know. But uh, that means, well, when you say that you cannot, uh, or you you didn't know that someday uh, you will headline a festival or having a clothing line with Comme des Garçons. But when you're now thinking about the next, years is there something like you'd like to do or that you got something in mind which would be like maybe a next step because i mean people are uh answering your phone calls <laughs> well i mean it's always an evolution isn't there i mean there's, yeah. i'm really into wellness i'm really into um vegan vegan cooking i'm really into um what what, what would that look like um I've done some silly Instagram videos where I'm talking to the vegetables, my, you know, talking <laughs> shit to the vegetables, I call it. Um, I don't, I, I think for me now is to just um, be open, um, continue to make, I, I don't necessarily know if I'll, you know, may want to make an R&B album or a jazz album or You know, maybe something completely different. Little Lewis made two amazing albums and then make three amazing albums. And then, you know, I, I don't know. I just know that I will see where this journey takes me. I'm just being open. Um, I guess the next step is the album coming. The album, soon. Black Girl Magic, which I'm really, really proud of. I mean, it's so funny how like a lot of the music on there, it's it's just talks about a lot of topics that are in the cultural currency at the moment. So taking a stand politically um not you know the, a response to social media is not about you it's not about me it's about us um love is a state of mind uh there's a lots of things about love and resistance and sex tension that i did with douglas mccarthy is basically about s&m sex you know so i think it's just really touches about a lot of touches on a lot of things that i'm interested in so I'm really, really, really excited for it. Maybe also some kind of self-reflection then? Um, well, as we said earlier before, your music is never as good or as bad as the human being that you are. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, I mean, in, at the end of every talk. Uh, we're we're at the end? Yeah, I know we could talk for. Oh my for god, like this was this was like ongoing, a really ongoing. bad hookup. This is like a really bad <laughs> Tinder date. It's over so quickly, and no one came yet. <laughs> yeah, you can you could say it's a bad Tinder date. It's a bad Tinder date. Um, of course, like are we talking about your new record mm -hmm. uh, that's coming mm -hmm. when early twenty twenty one. 
early 2021. So, uh, but the first out. singles, the first two singles, uh, La Femme Fantastique and It's Not About You is dropping July 31st and August 7th with a really great video that's coming with that. And then the album is, then we have some remixes, La Femme Fantastique. It's being remixed by Kink, which is amazing. So I get to involve some of my favorite producers in the, also the, the process. But I work with some really great musicians. Uh, Chris Penny, he's a really awesome, awesome uh, musician. And um, Lance Desardi is a really great engineer. And uh, Luke Solomon, who's who I release a lot of my music on his label Classic, which used to run with Derek Carter. He's been my biggest supporter and and we've we've I, I can't say enough how grateful I am for it. Because without him I wouldn't have a lot of the success. He really supports my music and um So a little shout out here. A little shout out to all my peeps. <laughs> um but yeah, it's um I'm really, really excited about it because I it really feels more personal this album. Um than the first one. The first one took four years to make. And this one sort of took 18 months. So you have to keep the, you have to keep the well full. True. Yeah. Honey, I really thank you for oh. being on the podcast. Oh, yeah. And hopefully maybe talk to you in one year. We need a part two. Part two. <laughs> We need to follow up that bad tender day. Maybe you, you, would have, <laughs> you will have grown in that span of time. I don't want to be a stigma, but I, I call you. I'll call you. Okay. But no, yeah, maybe we can continue. <laughs> we can continue that talk. Well, I think there's so soon. much more to say. I mean, I, I, I really feel like, you know, there's so much to say about my story that I've, I, I just, all the different people, I did an interview once and I called it social mobility because I move between so many different worlds and how they all intersect and cross pollinate and, Yeah. Until we meet again. Until we meet again. Thanks, yes. honey. You're welcome. That was my conversation with Honey Dijon. I think it's inspiring to see how she founds her way in the music industry and how strong she stands up for important topics. Also to hear about New York and Chicago of the 90s gave me a lot of insights into the roots of house music. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And as always, I'm looking forward to any feedback or guest requests. Text us via Instagram or leave a review at Apple. Until then, take care. Up to the next episode. Das war der Telekom Electronic Beats Podcast. Abonniert den Podcast bei Apple, Soundcloud, Spotify oder Deezer. Wir sehen uns im Club. Bis dann.